This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come afresh and illuminate that word to our hearts and our minds. Speak, we pray. Help us to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we continue with our three-part preaching series entitled Christ in All of Scripture. And this morning, we're looking at the theme, Christ our High Priest and Sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the job of a priest was to act on behalf of the people, to represent them before God. A priest would serve the people, pray for the people, and most importantly, offer sacrifices to God for the sins of the people. In Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, we see Jesus described as our great high priest. But it's in our Old Testament passage today from the prophet Isaiah that we see described so powerfully how Jesus is that high priest. Isaiah chapter 53 shows us how Jesus was not only the priest who came to offer a sacrifice, but more than that, Jesus himself was the sacrifice. And this is all the more striking given that this prophecy was written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. Each of the three readings today give us important insights into what theologians call the atonement. What exactly is atonement? What does that word mean? The origins of the word go back not as far as you might think, actually only to the mid-16th century, at the time when the Bible was being uh, first translated into English. William Tyndale was working on translating the New Testament, and in 1526, there was no English word which meant reconciliation with God. So Tyndale decided he would make one up, and he coined a new word, literally, at one meant atonement, being at one with God, made right with God, reconciled with God, to convey the meaning of what Jesus' work on the cross was all about. Well, this reading from Isaiah is a very moving account. It's full of meaning and encouragement and challenge for us today. It gives us a wonderful window into what Jesus came to do, and in particular, on what basis forgiveness of sins is made available to those who frankly don't deserve it, which is all of us. The opening verses give us a portrait of the suffering that Jesus underwent. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. And before I go any further, I want to say I want to say this this morning about how we approach these scriptures. I want us to come 
with a degree of humility and honesty about ourselves. You see, if you hold the view that you are fine, have no issues, and are a thoroughly healthy, put-together good person, today's lessons won't resonate with you. Uh, but they should. Unfortunately, it's quite possible for us to be self-assured without being self-aware. And that is a recipe for disaster. What is shocking, well, there are many things that are shocking, but one of the things that's shocking in this passage is the directness and the bluntness of what the prophet says about the suffering of Jesus. For while it is clearly about Jesus, it's also about us. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. That sounds as if Isaiah is saying that my wrongdoing, my selfishness, my sin, my weakness, my sickness of the soul merits some sort of punishment. That's the word used in verse 5. And all that punishment, instead of being visited upon me, was laid on Jesus. And of course, that is exactly what is being said. And this presents a problem for many people. First, the idea of punishment is not something people want to hear about. Most people would much prefer, prefer to hear about forgiveness for their wrongdoing. But this passage, we'll get to forgiveness, but this passage talks about punishment and payment, which sounds harsh. If God is a God of love, why can't he just forgive me? I'll come back to that. But even if we can get over this first hurdle about sin deserving punishment, the idea that the punishment which I deserve can somehow be put onto someone else vicariously, well, that just sounds intrinsically unfair. Now, I will say that superficially it is rather appealing. So, you know, if I get pulled over for driving at 80 miles an hour on the turnpike and Joel Scandrett gets to pay the fine, well, that works for me. Now, of course, that wouldn't be fair. But how is any of this fair? Even Isaiah himself doesn't seem to think it's very fair. Verse 8, by a perversion of justice, he was taken away. And if you think about it, everything about Jesus' arrest, trial, execution, was manifestly unfair and unjust. At best, it amounted to judicial murder, and at worst, it was mob rule. But if you think that sounds unfair, keep reading in this difficult, challenging, wonderful passage from Isaiah 53 till you get to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. If this is what atonement is about, if this is how we are made at one with God, no wonder people have struggled with it. I think one of our struggles for us living in the 21st century is that we don't have a living cultural context in which to understand what is going on here. We're used to hearing celebrities or politicians or others in public life 
who do things that are wrong, but for whom there seem to be few, if any, consequences. Except, of course, for those whom they've betrayed or defrauded or otherwise hurt. But in Isaiah's day and at the time of Jesus, those hearing this passage of Scripture would have understood that there are always consequences for wrongdoing. And that when there is sin, a price has to be paid. They would at least have had some intrinsic understanding of the principle of atonement. Priests and sacrifices were enshrined in the culture. Animals had been sacrificed in the place of sinners for a very long time. But before I can talk more about the necessity for sacrifice, I think we have to understand why there should be a penalty in the first place. My favorite click on the computer is the undo button. And so we like to think that we live in a world where undo buttons kind of apply anywhere that easily. And of course they don't. You know, I think sometimes we think, well, if we don't get caught, well, then there's no problem. And if we do get caught, well, then we can try and blame someone else. And if we can't blame someone else, then we can always just say sorry and then everything will be all right. Except that's not true. There, there, there is no undo button for many of our words and our actions. Yes, we can say sorry. Yes, we can turn from our sin and repent and turn from that wrongdoing. We can make amends. But there are plenty of things that we can never undo. If you play with matches in a tinder-dry forest, you can't undo the sparks that may set thousands of acres on fire. If you gossip and spread false rumors, if you falsely accuse someone, there's no simple undo button. Indeed, St. James tells us that the tongue is like a fire that sets a forest ablaze. Once you have spoken words of condemnation against another and you have wounded them, you cannot unspeak those words. And so I think we must be careful not to trivialize the terrible, lasting, destructive power of sin. Now, does that mean that there's no hope, that there's no forgiveness, that there's no way forward, that there's no restoration? Absolutely not. Indeed, that's what this passage is all about, and that's why it's such good news. But for us to appreciate what wonderful news this is, we do have to start with a clear understanding of the truth about how serious and devastating the consequences of sin truly are. You and I are sinners. It's not merely that we make bad choices. It's not merely that we make mistakes. We are sinners. And our sin is not trivial. Sure, you may not have been involved in murder or sex trafficking or some other heinous crime. But hear these words of Scripture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some, all. One of the terrible things about sin is its addictive power. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, I think it's easy to see this in some areas of sin uh, more than others. We know that people become addicted to drugs or alcohol. 
But there are all kinds of ways that people become addicted to sin. Indeed, sin itself is the ultimate addiction. Of course, it may be more or less obvious in different people, but people are addicted to envy, to arrogance, to pride, to selfishness, slander or sexual immorality. And we can become addicted to patterns of thought or behaviors which on our own we can't break. Sin is a huge problem. And no matter how hard we might genuinely try to turn over a new leaf, to be good, we fail. We cannot fix this problem by ourselves. And while we might like to think that God will just let us off, it does not work like that. We might hope that God would say to us, well, you've led a pretty good life. You've been a nice person most of the time. It'll be okay. But God doesn't do that. Indeed, he can't do that. It would be against his very nature. God is a holy God. He's a God of justice. You wouldn't want a human judge to let everybody off who came before him, would you? No, there's something within human nature that cries out for justice. When we hear of children being molested or elderly people attacked or someone being raped, we long for the perpetrators of these things to be brought to justice, to be punished. Now, our motives may be mixed. There may be an element of revenge. But there is such a thing as righteous anger. We're right to feel that sin should be punished, that people who do such things should not get away with them. But in saying this, we have to recognize that it's not just other people's sin that deserve punishment. It's our sin, mine and yours. And one day, all will be subject to the judgment of God. Jesus is coming again, as we say in the Creed, every week to judge the living and the dead. And St. Paul tells us that the wages of sin, that which we earn, that which we deserve, the wages of sin is death. God is a just God. He will not be mocked. And one day he will judge the earth. But as well as being a just God, the Bible tells us he is also a merciful God. And the other half of that verse, the wages of sin is death, it, it carries on. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Free, but not cheap. Gift, something you don't earn, something that is given. And so God, in his love and his mercy, has done something about this terrible curse of sin. God sent Jesus. This is what Isaiah the prophet is writing about. God's servant, God's suffering servant, who would come to do something about the problem of sin. Even to go so far as to take our punishment upon himself on the cross. And so the good news of our faith is that because God loves us, he did not leave us in the addictive mess that we make of our own lives. Rather, he came in the person of his son, Jesus, to die instead of us. And this is what we call the self-substitution of God. In the words of the apostle Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body by his, uh, on the tree, 
by his wounds you have been healed. And there are four important truths that I want us to grasp if we are to appreciate the magnitude and the wonder of this. First, I am a sinner. And my sin separates me from God. There is no personal undo button. I cannot fix my sin by trying harder or being religious. Second, God is not capricious or unjust. He is holy and he is just. But the consequences of sin, mine, yours, every human's, is death. Third, God is merciful. He does not desire the death of even one sinner. For God so loved who? The world. And fourth, God does not just let us off, thereby trivializing our sin. There are consequences for our sin, and yet it is God who pays the price. As we saw at the end of the Gospel reading this morning, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And this ransom, this payment, is the price of our freedom from the consequences of sin. And the price was very, very high. It cost Jesus his life. There are, all, there are many analogies and pictures that we could use to try and describe what Jesus did for us on the cross and explain how he gives us life. But this morning I want to unpack just one of them, one that I have found personally very helpful. It's an illustration from the law courts. The Apostle Paul says that through Christ's death, we have been justified, and justification is a legal term. If you went to court and were legally acquitted, you would be justified. So let's suppose for a moment that Tish Warren is caught stealing the church silver, and she's arrested and charged with theft. And let's suppose further that there's no misunderstanding, there's no excuse, and she is clearly guilty and has no defense. Imagine that she comes before the judge. I'll play the part of the judge. All right, so Tish would be arraigned in the court, and she would be asked, how do you plead? Are you guilty or not guilty? And she would have to say, guilty, guilty. All right. Uh, So what would you have me do? I mean, should I let her off? Because, well, it's Tish, and we all like Tish, and and she's a great writer, and and she's a great preacher. I mean, can I let her off? Because she's a really nice person, and she's, she's a great mom, and I mean, surely we shouldn't convict her of this crime. Okay, well, I got some no's and some yeses. Wow, okay. Well, excuse me, but what kind of precedent would I be setting if I simply say, oh, never mind? Where would the justice be for those who gave the silver in memory of loved ones? If I just let her off, that completely trivializes what she's done. What kind of a judge would that make me? No, the right thing to do is to accept her guilty plea, and then we move on to sentencing. Now, I could be lenient. But suppose she sold the silver and spent it on wild living in Texas. There's absolutely no way we can get this back. At the very least, I'm going to have to fine her, 
big time, and there's going to have to be compensation paid. So I pronounce sentence, I will fine Tish $50,000. Now that's justice. But what if I took my wig off, and I, and I came down from the judge's bench, and I took out my personal checkbook, and I make out a check to Tish Warren for $50,000. You see, that would be mercy. At which point, if she accepts the check, <laughs> her sentence would be paid, the judgment satisfied, and Tish would go free. Justice is done, Tish is freed from her debt, and the judge is perfectly fair. But I want you to hear this this morning. Jesus does not force his forgiveness on anyone. It's possible that Tish could say, no thanks, I don't want what you've got to offer. I'll do it my way. Now, of course, that's like any illustration. It's inadequate. It's an inadequate illustration of what's going on when Jesus dies in my place on the cross. First, our plight is much worse. The penalty we're facing is not a mere fine, it's death. Second, the cost was so much greater. It cost God, his one and only son, who paid the penalty. Nevertheless, I hope you can begin to see how this substitution thing works. God, the just judge, judges us because we're guilty, but then in his love, comes down in the person of his son, Jesus, and pays the penalty for us. And so in this way, he is both just in that he does not allow the guilty to go unpunished, and also he is the one who justifies in taking the penalty himself. And so in the person of his son, he enables us to go free. Jesus is both judge and savior. He is both high priest and sacrifice. And it's not an innocent third party, but God himself who gives his life to save us. So I hope this morning that you can see, maybe for the umpteenth time for many of you, but perhaps for someone the first time, how wonderful and amazing and essential is this atonement. And what Jesus did on the cross is at the very core of our Christian faith. And so what difference does this make? Everything. Everything. For while there is no easy button, there's no undo button for our sins, we can have confidence that there is a way for our sin to be forgiven. Maybe there are people here this morning who know only too well the weight and burden of your sin. Well, hear these words of hope. Hear these words of life. We can have, you can have, hope for the future of sins forgiven, of a right relationship with God restored, of right relationships with other people restored. And there is hope now. There's hope for the world. There is hope for Pittsburgh. There is hope for the people that you know and love. For Jesus has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. He was wounded for all our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. 
By his bruises, healing is made possible for all. And it's this healing, this forgiveness, that we who have received it are called to share with the broken world in which we live, with our neighbors, with our colleagues. And as we read in Hebrews 4 verse 15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy and grace. That's what I need. That's what we all need. And that's what God wants you to know. And if you do not know this at one with God, please don't leave here today without asking someone to help you understand how you can be made at one with God. You could ask someone to pray with you during communion, or you can talk with me or one of the other clergy or someone else. Thanks be to God for his mercy and grace. Amen.